Ephesians chapter 5 is a pretty familiar text on marriage, um, and we're going we're gonna to get to what Paul has to write to the church in Ephesus here in just a little bit. Um, we find ourselves in the second week of our series, You Are Not Your Own, where what we're really talking about is a question of authority. It's, it's a question of authority. Who do we belong to? Who gets to tell us what is good and right? As I was preparing for this message this week, I was looking at some statistical trends in our culture and in our society. And a lot of this is uh, stuff you could easily find. It's from simple population surveys and census data. But one of the things that it reveals is over the last four to five decades, there's a a trend. I looked at a lot of charts and graphs this week, uh, but instead of boring you with all the charts and graphs, I'll just give you some bullet points. One thing that, those, that, that a lot of that reveals is the, the, the decline or the diminishing over the decades of the traditional family or the nuclear family. A mom, a dad, and kids, um, that, that is uh, the nuclear family, the traditional family, in a lot of ways is on, is on the decline. Now, some bullet points that kind of point to this. Uh, not as many people today are getting married as, as, once, uh, as once did. Um, in addition, so the marriage rate is, is slowly kind of declining. In addition, those that are, many are getting married later in life. So the average uh, man used to get married in his early 20s, uh, right after school or education. Uh, then over the decades that went to mid-20s, now the average man gets married um, in his early 30s. Um, in addition, those that do get married, many are choosing not to have kids. And they'll cite things like culture and society and the world's a bad, dangerous place. And so Many are simply choosing to not have children. Those that do have children, many are waiting till much later in life to have children um, and deciding some are deciding to have fewer uh, children than, 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 once, than they, once, they once would. In addition, the divorce rate is up. Um, it continues to creep up um, in large part because of something called no-fault divorce, which is, so basically now if you want a divorce, you don't really even need a reason. Um, you can basically just say, we don't want to be married anymore. And so that makes divorce super easy, uh, very accessible. And so that continues to creep up as well. And then there are a number of other cultural trends uh, regarding sexuality, quite frankly, that that are precipitating that decline. Things like obviously same-sex relationships and marriage, things like open marriages, multiple partner marriages, things like that are on the rise, all of which is uh, antithetical to what we would call traditional uh, marriage and the nuclear family. So those are just some stats. Those are just some, some facts from, again, basic census data that point to this sort of downward trajectory of traditional marriage and, and family. Um, and what you find in our culture and society is, uh, on the one hand, at very least, there's sort of an apathy to all of that. Like, um, they're apathetic towards it. In other words, they don't, they don't really care. It's like not a big deal. They don't seem to care. And at worst, and in many circles, it's actually even celebrated. The decline of the family is actually celebrated as a good thing. And so I just started to ask the question this, this week as I was thinking through the message, like, why is it that um, large segments of our society would view the decline of the traditional family as, as a good thing, a thing to be celebrated? Going back to what Austin talked about last week, we live in a, in a day and an age and a culture where people want they want, or at least they think they want, complete freedom and autonomy um, from, any, from any authority. Uh, again, the idea is that, um, you know, you should be able to discover for yourself your own identity, 
You should be able to figure out who you are um, out from under uh, anybody that would sort of try to shape you or mold you in any way. Um, You should be, you know, true to yourself. You should be able to express your own individuality and your own uniqueness. Um, That is is sort of the mantra, if you will, from our culture. Um, And so no one should, should tell you no or stop it or hey, what you're doing is not good for you. No one should try to hold you accountable or rebuke you in any way. Um, Again, no no one should sort of mold you or shape you in any way, form, or fashion. You should be completely free to look within yourself at your own feelings and what you want and choose your own path. People should be free to discover who they are, and then the people around you, culture would say, should affirm you in whatever choice, decision, identity you happen to choose. That's kind of the leanings of our, of our culture. That's painting with some broad strokes, but that's kind of where we find ourselves. And so, since that is where we find ourselves as a culture and a society, then really, if you think about it, it, doesn't, it makes a lot of sense as to why a lot of people would view the traditional family and marriage as a, a negative thing, right? Because within a traditional family, a lot of the things that, you know, the, 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 the freedom, if you will, is just... It's just not there. A lot of the things we just talked about as negative are built into that traditional family and marriage. So things like authority and accountability, things like discipline and correction, things like molding and shaping and teaching uh, certain values and things, those are all sort of intrinsic to, to the family. And so if you view those things, if society views those things as negative and bad, then it makes sense that they would say, wait, the traditional family is, is not good. Uh, basically to kind of summarize, the traditional marriage and traditional family is often rejected in our society because it's viewed as an unhealthy authority structure that limits individuality and self-discovery, okay? That's, again, I know that paints with some pretty broad strokes. And to be clear, being in a traditional marriage or kind of the the nuclear traditional family, um, there's a lot of brokenness within that, there is a lot of, um, of unhealthy structures within that. Sadly, there are abusive and neglectful parents. Many of you have even come from broken homes and maybe experienced abuse. And so you may look at that and go, well, yeah, that's terrible. Like, that's awful. We don't, we don't want that. And so um, some of these ideas in society and culture have come about because of some misuse um, and abuse, even within the, the traditional family. So that's kind of, kind of painting, painting the picture. The question we're asking in this particular series is who gets to tell us how to live our lives? Who gets to have authority? Who gets to tell us what is good and right and beautiful? Who gets to tell us what is wrong, what is sinful when we're in error? Who gets to tell us what is for our good and for our joy and what is, and what is not? And one thing Austin mentioned last week, the bottom line, kind of the big idea from his sermon last week is this. For those of us that are believers, we consider ourselves Christians, okay? And when I say that, I want you to understand, if you consider yourself a Christian, that is more than just cognitive belief in some things, okay? That is more than just, I believe some things about God and I believe some things about Jesus. What that means is, if you're a Christian, it means you have surrendered your life to Christ. That's what that means. You can highlight, underline, put in bold and italics the word surrendered, but the Bible talks about giving your life to the Lord, surrendering your life to Christ, which means for those of us that are in Christ, what should most concern us is not cultural trends 
And it's not our own beliefs and our own feelings on the matter. What should most concern us is what God has to say, right? And so today, very quickly, I want to just look at what God has to say in his word about, about marriage and family. I want to see what God's going to tell us, what God has to teach us about marriage and family, all right? And so Ephesians 5 is one of those great texts where Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he's going to talk about marriage a little bit. Um, and, and before I read it, I'll just go ahead and mention off the, kind of right out of the gate, there are a lot of society-wide objections to marriage. Um, maybe some of you know people or you've heard some of these, uh, maybe you even hold some of the same sort of society-wide objections to marriage. I'll try to remember uh, some of them. Some would say, well, marriage, when it started, was really about, you know, property rights and things. It's an outdated thing. We don't need anymore. We don't, you don't need to be married any longer. Some would say marriage, it's, it, it sort of uh, prevents individuality. It's oppressive in some ways. And so marriage is, again, outdated and we don't need it. Some would say marriage is uh, nothing more than a piece of paper. You don't need a piece of paper to be in love with someone. And so what's the point of getting married? Others would say marriage stifles passion and, and, and again, individuality. And, and, and others would say just simply like, well, I look around at all the marriages and I see a lot of them that are just, most people I know that are married are just unhappy. So I don't want that for my life. I don't need to get married. Maybe you've heard some of these, right? The problem is a lot of them are built on um, just kind of a uh, foundational lies or, or lack of full understanding. What does God have to say about marriage? What does God have to say about family? Ephesians 5, I'll begin in verse 25. Here's what Paul writes. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects, some versions say honors, her husband. So right out of the gate, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage. It's not silent on the issue. Um, going all the way back to, to, to Genesis. Uh, and what I want to do is just share some what I believe are just overall sort of biblical principles about marriage and the purpose of marriage. Okay? And so the first one of those is simply this, that marriage is God's plan and God's design. Okay, marriage is not an institution that, that man thought of or created. It wasn't about property rights ever. Marriage starts from the very beginning. In Genesis, at the climax of the creation story, you have God bringing a man and a woman together and uniting them together, okay? You could say it this way. This holy, sacred text we call scripture, in a very real way, in Genesis, it starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve, God bringing Adam and Eve together. And then all the way at the end, at the book of Revelation, it ends with a wedding, Jesus and the church, right? Literally, the bookends of Scripture are, are a wedding and, and a marriage. Marriage is God's plan, God's agenda, God's idea from the very beginning. 
And if it's God's plan, if God's the one that designed it and created it, then guess what? God's the one that gets to tell us how to do that, right? God's the one that gets to tell us how it works and God's the one that gets to regulate this thing. Which brings me to my second point, that in scripture, marriage is designed to be a covenantal relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. One of the books on marriage that I find most beneficial and helpful is Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. I use it often. I would highly recommend it to you. Um, I use it in premarital counseling, in marriage counseling sometimes. It's just a really great resource. One of the things he talks about in his book is the difference in a consumer relationship and a covenantal relationship. In a consumer relationship, uh, basically, you're only in the relationship as long as the vendor or the person or the group or whatever meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If you find another vendor who can meet your needs better or the cost is lower elsewhere, then you're free to leave one relationship. You're free to leave a consumer relationship and just go to another one. Because again, you can find a cheaper cost. They can meet your needs better. That is a typical consumer relationship. That's how the business world works. That's how a lot of relationships work. If I'm not getting what I want out of that relationship, I'm just gonna go to another one. But marriage, biblically, is not a consumer relationship, it's a covenantal relationship. It is a binding relationship where the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. See, it's very different. In a, in a covenant, the, the, the focus is on the relationship, not my immediate needs. And the problem for a, for a lot of us in our culture and our society is while God designed marriage to be a covenantal relationship, we often treat it like a consumer relationship. If my needs aren't being met at a cost acceptable to me, I'm going to simply go elsewhere. But that's not the way God designed marriage to be. Marriage is about sacrificial service. You read Ephesians 5. Marriage is not about, uh, you know, finding someone you're compatible with, right? Marriage is not about finding someone that meets your needs, meets your desires, does, you know, fills, fills your every longing and asks nothing of you. That is, that, is a, that is not a selfless pursuit that Ephesians 5 talks about. That is a selfish pursuit, what's in it for me. Ephesians 5 talks about just the opposite, that marriage is about humbly, sacrificially learning to serve and give yourself for the good of the other, right? I'm reminded that, you know, let's be honest, sometimes marriage is, sometimes marriage is, a little, is hard, isn't it? Sometimes marriage is hard. Anybody in here married? Yeah, it, sometimes marriage is hard. I always joke, and my wife's in this service too. Like, she'd be like, amen, right? Like, listen, sometimes it's difficult. I always say that the only people that think marriage is not gonna be hard are engaged couples, right? <laughs> engaged couples, they're like, we're gonna be different. We're never gonna fight. And then you've been married for like five minutes and you're like, that's not what I thought, right? That's, you know, you look in scripture, marriage is often difficult. Why? Well, in, in Genesis one and two, marriage is easy. Marriage is fun, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's no sin, there's no problems. Like Genesis 1 and 2, they're naked in a garden eating fruit, right? That's, that's a good day. Like that's a good marriage, right? That sounds like, oh, that's awesome. Then you get to Genesis 3 and what happens in Genesis 3? Sin enters the world and all of a sudden there's strife. There's problems. It's not easy, right? It, it's difficult. It's a battle sometimes. And I always say like a lot of people get married expecting Genesis 1 and 2, 
Naked in a garden eating fruit. Sounds good. Sign me up. And then they get to Genesis. They, get, they end up getting Genesis 3 and they're like, this is not what I signed up for, right? This is not what I thought it was going to be. Marriage is a covenant where the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. That's the way God designed it. God wired it to be. And as you read Ephesians 5, it is about selfless, sacrificial service, which brings me to my third big idea about marriage and really the most important one. And that is this, that biblical marriage is designed to be a reflection of the gospel. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. That biblical marriage is designed to be a reflection, a picture, a snapshot of God's saving love for us in Christ Jesus. That's why God gives us marriage. The gospel helps us understand marriage. Marriage helps us understand the gospel. That's the whole reason God designed this this institution to begin with, right? Marriage is meant to reveal to you the beauty and the depths of the gospel, and it's going to push you into a deeper reliance on it right? Tim Keller's quote here, I love this one. He says, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is uh, because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful all at once, right? That's marriage. It's both difficult and hard, but also worth it and beautiful. And it's a picture of God's saving love for us in Christ Jesus. Listen, all of Ephesians 5, some people get very uncomfortable with Ephesians 5. And again, I didn't even start, I could have started a few verses earlier where it uses the S word nobody likes, right? <gasps> submit, right? We all freak out on submit. We're like, ah, oh, you don't tell me that, you know, like, but here's the thing. And I don't have time to chase all the rabbits of like complementarianism versus egalitarianism and kind of where you stand on like roles in the family and who's the boss and who should be blah, blah, blah. You can, you can have those debates. We take an open-handed approach here, which means, look, we can understand that some people can look at the same text of scripture and, and come away from it seeing some different things. And we're just not, that's not a hill we're going to die on. We're not going to like declare this is what you have to, be like wherever you kind of fall in that spectrum, here's what I would tell you. If you read Ephesians 5, If you read Ephesians 5, it's really kind of silly that we have taken Ephesians 5 and turned it into an argument about who gets to be the boss and who gets to be in charge. When in context, Ephesians 5 is all about how we can sacrificially serve one another and who gets to be the, the, the greater servant. I mean, isn't it silly that we've turned to the passage about sacrificially giving of yourself, submitting to one another and serving one another and argued, taken that to argue about who gets to be the boss and who gets to be in charge? I mean, man, we've just kind of missed the whole point of Ephesians 5. Marriage is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way Christ sacrificially loves and serves us, the church. That's the picture of marriage. That's why God gives marriage. That's why God says marriage is for your good and for your joy, even though sometimes it's very, very difficult, right? I want to get to children and family as well. A couple things just in general about children and about family. First of all is this, that children are also a part of God's plan, okay? Children are part of God's plan too. Over in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 28, God has brought, created Adam and Eve and brought them together. And, and then he tells them this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
Listen, it was God's plan from the beginning that his children have children. Now, again, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean this is God's mandate for everyone, okay? This doesn't mean that everyone is going to have children or should have children, okay? Um, But this is, you see the plan that God puts together. Having children was not man's idea, and they just all of a sudden went, you know what? Let's start a family. No, it was God's plan. Children are part of God's plan. Um, The other big idea about children in the Bible across Old and New Testament is that children are a blessing to be received, okay? Children are a blessing to be received. There's a lot of verses I could point to. Psalm 127 verse three says this, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Some versions say a blessing from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. All through scripture, when culture and society viewed children as, you know, something you could just do away with, uh, you know, they're not important, they don't have any rights, um, they don't matter until they get older or to a certain age, Christians have always believed differently. Jesus had a very countercultural view of children. Most rabbis, when they would teach, they didn't want children around because children were a distraction. And so they would often tell their followers, their disciples, hey, Get rid of the children so I can talk to the adults. And then Jesus comes along, right? And his own disciples, they see a bunch of children coming to Jesus and his own disciples at one point try to go remove all the children. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You let the little children come to me, right? You let the little children come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to to these, right? And he would take them in his arms and, and he would talk to children and he used children as examples He used them as sermon illustrations in a positive way, not a negative way, right? The scriptures say that Jesus received children. And that Greek word for receive, it's it's an all-encompassing word. It means that he approved, he loved, treated with kindness to aid in time of need, to care for and meet the needs of. That is the way we should treat and see children, right? And so we try, we work very hard here as a church to receive children, to see children as a blessing because that's what scripture teaches. That's the way Jesus interacted with kids. The final thing I would say about children is this. In light of all those things, one thing we see in scripture very clearly is that children need to be parented. Children need to be parented. Back to Ephesians, after the, chapter five wraps up talking about marriage and then you get into chapter six, he goes straight straight into the next section, which is about children, right? Here's what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all the parents in the room said, amen, Amen, right? Yes, preach, right? Where's my kids? I knew I should have brought them in church today, right? No, right? We love that. We love that. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Look at verse four. Fathers, and I think by extension, moms, I think this is the parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up. The Greek word is padia, okay? The the word padia. And padia refers to the overall upbringing of kids. Everything from education and instruction to discipline and correction It's the total upbringing of the child. And what the text just said is that God has laid that responsibility. God has given that authority to parents. Now, this is, again, countercultural because our culture says, 
Let kids discover for themselves who they are. Let them form their own identity. You just affirm them in whatever they want to do. You don't mold them and shape them and teach them. And you don't, listen, you, you let them be them, express their individuality and all these words we like to use today. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God has given parents a weighty responsibility for the padilla of their children. I have parents all the time that'll text me, email me, just talk to me and say, you know, what does the Bible say about, you know, where my kids should go to school? What's the best kind of school? Should they go to, you know, public school, Christian school, private school? Uh, should they be homeschooled? And, and some people are very opinionated. They're very opinionated about the type of school that is the best or the most biblical. And they're waiting for me to give some sort of answer so that they can either be like, that's right, or they can argue with me, whichever, you know, one. And here's what I always say, like, pray about it and then educate your kids the way you feel led to educate your kids. Like there's not a de declaration in scripture that says this is the way you should do that. The Bible does say that you as a parent are responsible for the padilla, the upbringing, education, instruction, discipline, correction of your child. And so it's not one size fits all. And what works best for one family may not work best for another family. So if you're waiting on me to give you a declaration as to how you should educate your kids, my answer is going to always be the same. Pray about it and then make the decision that you believe and you feel the Lord is leading you, leading you to make, right? At the end of the day, we say this at baby dedication all the time. That, that the responsibility to teach and instruct your children is not a responsibility to be too quickly and easily pushed off onto someone else. That ultimately, it's the parent's responsibility, which again, runs countercultural to a society that says, let them figure it out for themselves. And so again, um, as, a, as a follower of Christ, what I've said is I am surrendering my life to Christ. That my feelings are not of utmost importance. What I think, what I feel, what cultural trends are out there, what I'm most concerned with is what God's going to tell me how, how to live. And God says marriage is good. It is holy. It is a picture and a reflection of the gospel. God says that children are a blessing to be received and to be parented, to be shaped and molded, not to be just left to themselves. Because we're leaving kids to themselves. And let me just ask a general, like, how's that working for us, right? Like, it doesn't seem to be going great. It, it, mental health among children is, is, is right now like the, the highest, like it's at its highest that it's ever been. Let me just finally say a word to our singles because I know that we have a lot of, in fact, I think we, our last sort of uh, analysis of our own church, uh, we saw that over a third of the people in our church are single. And when you include especially college students, that's, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of singles. Now, uh, many, many of those singles um, have a desire in them to be married one day, okay? But not all, not all. Um, some do not. And I know that sometimes when you're single and you hear a sermon on marriage and family, you can quickly kind of go, well, that's not for me. Um, and you can often feel maybe even overlooked. And I, I want to make sure our singles do not feel overlooked because the reality is the Bible also has a lot to say about singleness. And we live in a culture, it's kind of this weird thing where like, on the one hand, it pushes down marriage and says marriage is not important. While at the same time, making singles feel like if you're not married by age like 25, then something's wrong with you. Like God has clearly not blessed your life. And so what I want to tell you is that is biblically not true, right? Uh, many of the most faithful uh, people in scripture were single. 
including Jesus himself, who we worship, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul. Many of people uh, lived their lives single. Singleness is a legitimate biblical option. In fact, Paul is going to actually call singleness a gift for ministry. Paul's going to call it a gift. And so I just want you to, you to hear me that, that singleness is a legitimate biblical option and it's not a curse. It's not something wrong with you. Uh, it, is, it is indeed a blessing. It can be and it is indeed a blessing, just like marriage is. And so, uh, again, at the end of the day, this whole series is about who gets to tell us how to do life. Are we going to listen to just cultural trends? Are we going to just look within ourselves and discover our own feelings? Or are we going to be people that say, I have surrendered to Jesus. And so what I think about it doesn't really matter. What is of utmost concern to me is what God has to say. And I'm going to try to follow what God has to say. And God says, marriage is good. That it's for your good. It's for your joy. It's a reflection of the gospel. That kids are a blessing to be received. And that singleness is also a blessing from God. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful today um, that you, God, you don't leave us to ourselves to just figure things out, that you're a good father who shapes and molds and teaches and instructs and disciplines and corrects. And while, God, some of those things can be very uncomfortable, they're also very necessary. They're very good. They are for our good and they are for our joy. So God, we thank you today for marriage, the beautiful institution of marriage, the fact that, that God, it, it paints a beautiful picture of the gospel and how you sacrificially and selflessly serve and love us, your church. And God, I pray that our marriages would reflect that. I know that across the, across the services today, there's, there's marriages, God, some of which are, are healthy and thriving and, and some of which today may be in a very difficult spot and a difficult season maybe even on the rocks a little bit. There may be some in here contemplating divorce and just throwing in the towel. And, and God, I, I pray for them today. I pray that you would remind them that marriage is your plan and your idea. That marriage is difficult and hard and that, God, it's a picture of the gospel. God, we thank you for our kids. Pray that we would always see kids as a blessing to be received. That we would treat kids the way Jesus treated kids. So give us strength and grace to do that. God, we thank you for those in our church that are single. We thank you, God, that that is a gift for them. And I know that some in this moment, in this season, may not see it as such. But, God, I pray you'd remind them that it is a good, it is a good thing and it is a biblical option. And so, God, wherever we are on the map today, I pray that you would just remind us that you are the one that gets to tell us how to do life. You're the one that gets to tell us what is good and what is right and what is beautiful. And I pray that we would submit to your authority in our lives. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.